right, today we'll be in Daniel chapter 3, verses 19 through 30, but we're actually going to read uh, the entire chapter 3. So, Daniel chapter 3, beginning with verse 1. This is the word of God. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold, whose height was 60 cubits, and its breadth 6 cubits. He set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Then King Nebuchadnezzar sent to gather the satraps, the prefects, and the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Then the satraps, the prefects, and the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces gathered for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar set up, and the herald pronounced aloud, You are commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, that when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, you are to fall down and worship the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace." Therefore, as soon as all the peoples heard the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, all the peoples, nations, and languages fell down and worshipped the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Therefore, at that time, certain Chaldeans came forward and maliciously accused the Jews. They declared to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. You, O king, have made a decree that every man who hears the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, shall fall down and worship the golden image. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into a burning fiery furnace. There are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, pay no attention to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar, in furious rage, commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought. So they brought these men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? Now if you are ready when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, to fall down and worship the image that I have made, well and good. But if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace. And he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not... Be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar was filled with fury, and the expression of his face was changed against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He ordered the furnace heated seven times more than it was usually heated, and he ordered some of the mighty men of his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and to cast them into the burning, fiery furnace. Then these men were bound in their cloaks, their tunics, their hats, and their other garments, and they were thrown into the burning, fiery furnace. Because the king's order was urgent, 
and the furnace overheated. The flame of the fire killed those men who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell bound into the burning, fiery furnace. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and rose up in haste. He declared to his counselors, Did we not cast three men bound into the fire? They answered and said to the king, True, O king. He answered and said, But I see four men unbound, walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt. And the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. Then Nebuchadnezzar came near to the door of the burning fiery furnace. He declared, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out and come here. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out from the fire. And the satraps, the prefects, the governors, and the king's counselors gathered together and saw that the fire had not had any power over the bodies of those men. The hair of their heads was not singed, their cloaks were not harmed, and no smell of fire had come upon them. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants, who trusted in him, and set aside the king's command, and yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any god except their own god. Therefore I make a decree. Any people, nation, or language that speaks anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb, and their houses laid in ruins, for there is no other God who is able to rescue in this way. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. Thus far, the reading of God's word. Your life will be full of trials. So what do you do when trial is inflicted on you? You can't escape it. You can maybe control what trials come to a limited degree, but still, trials come for us all. And so you consider the story of a man like William Cooper. He's the writer of many well-loved hymns, including There is a fountain filled with blood and God moves in a mysterious way. And yet, his life was so far from easy. His early life, his young life, was marked by romantic and professional setbacks that drove him to depression. And after several suicide attempts, he was even committed to the asylum at St. Albans. And after he was released and after making a recovery, he ended up at the church where John Newton pastored. But Newton was so concerned for Cooper's mental state that he encouraged him to write hymns for publications, including some of those most famous ones that I mentioned before. But nevertheless, he continued to suffer deeply from periodic bouts with depression and never was completely free from it. And yet through it all, he was used mightily by God. He wrote these hymns. He also was a good poet himself. He was well acquainted with the classics. He wrote it influential translation of the Iliad and the Odyssey from the Greek. And his poetic skills were even put to good use for the cause of the abolition of slavery. His poem, The Negro's Complaint, was written in 1788, became a, a key publication for the abolition movement. And this is a poem that was even frequently quoted by Martin Luther King Jr. during the civil rights movement of the past century. And so God never rescued Cooper from his trials. But rather, God worked great things through his trials 
and glorified himself in Cooper's faithfulness amid those trials. And here, in the trials of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, we see these same principles played out. Now, where we left off last time, in the middle of our story, we see that these three friends tell God, tell the king, that God is able to deliver them from his fury. But as the episode concludes, we see that, yes, God indeed does deliver. As we do so, we're going to learn several things of what it looks like for God to deliver you, his, one of his people, in the midst of your trials. For God, God redeems your trials. And we see this in several ways. First, he delivers you through trials. Second, he grows you through trials. And third, he glorifies himself through your trials. And so first, God delivers you through trials. Now, the corollary to this is that God doesn't deliver you from trials. You're going to go through trials, but God delivers you through them. Now, God will not deliver you without trial in your life. Even if you were to lead a life where you had no suffering whatsoever, your life would still end in your eventual death. And you will not find that a pleasant experience. And yet, for the person who is in Christ, even death itself is an instrument of God that is used to conform us to Christ. For as Paul writes that, uh, without suffering, without the suffering of Christ, without suffering death with him, we don't inherit all that God has to offer. And so God delivers us not from suffering, but rather through suffering. Now Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they were offered the choice to worship the golden image or to worship God. And they chose to worship God, and they were thrown into this fire without any recourse. There's no court of appeal. And the furnace is overheated. Their death is certain. They're tossed in summarily, still dressed in their festive clothing. We don't know the exact purpose of this furnace other than this instrument of punishment, but suppose it had been on site to refine gold for this great image. Well, it would have burned a a temperature of 1950 degrees Fahrenheit. But gold doesn't even necessarily need to be melted to be worked, so it could have been a furnace for some other purpose, say for smelting iron requiring 2800 degrees. Or even... A little more modestly, suppose it's a nice Italian furnace meant for baking pizzas. Even at the modest requirement of 905 degrees, you expect certain death if you're just tossed in. In fact, even in your home oven, you wouldn't survive your home oven if put in to bake alongside a batch of cookies. And so what stands out here is that God might have stopped these three Hebrew friends from entering the furnace in the first place. But that's not how he worked. He let them go into the furnace and to face certain death. And he'll let you go through trials too. Trials that may even cause you to think that you're at the very end of yourself. That you think you can't possibly go on. But God lets you go into trials, and we see this all over the world. When he calls people in China to faith, he doesn't see to it the police never knock on their door. 
Ask a convert from Islam to Christianity how their family life fares after their conversion. We all have friends close to us, friends who have faith in Christ and yet face crippling depression and doubt and anxiety. Some who may suffer from eating disorders or addictions. And you yourself may even be one of these people. And these trials are, even if they're resolved at some point, they're often long and drawn out. Your trials may be long and drawn out, much like Paul's thorn in the flesh that persisted, but God will deliver you. Just the same way that he delivered Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, but he doesn't just deliver you, he is present with you in your trial. And that's the meaning of this fourth person who mysteriously appears among them, this one who looks like a son of the gods. You know, there's a long-standing debate whether this is an appearance of the pre-incarnate Christ or an angel of God or whatever, what mode of divine manifestation this might be. And, you know, there's nothing in the text that really tells us the answer. And it's not important to understanding this passage But what we learn from this is that God did manifest his presence with them in their trial. And he's present with you in your trials as well. And Christ's death is the guarantee of this. He, though he was the son of God, he joined us in death. We will die and he died. And so he became like one of us and he he suffered the worst torment possible. It wasn't just the physical pain of the nails in his hands and feet. It wasn't just the pain of losing all his disciples. It wasn't just the awareness of distance from his heavenly father. But on top of that, it was the wrath of God poured out on the sinless son of God. Whatever you suffer in life, Jesus has suffered worse. But rather than Lord, his greater suffering over you, he has compassion on you and he walks with you in his suffering and he brings you through it. As it says in Hebrews 5, he learned obedience through what he suffered and being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. He will walk with you in your suffering and he will not abandon you to go it alone. You will have to go through suffering, but he will be with you. And he will give you strength to carry on. And one day he will, in fact, bring you to a place where there is no more suffering. And so it may be hard. It may be long. But he will be there with you. And so for those of us who maybe have it easy right now, God calls us to be a presence of Christ, a manifestation of his body to those who are suffering. One day you will suffer too. I pray that you have people who are long, come alongside you within the church as well. So in many ways, through the ministry of the Holy Spirit, pouring God's love into our hearts, through the ministry of of the church through people's presence with us. God shows that he is present with us 
in all kinds of trials. But not only will he be delivering you through his presence in your trials, he will grow you through trials. And we see how Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego suffered no injury whatsoever as they walked among the flames. They, they were thrown in bound. They had no freedom. They ha- the only freedom they had is to land in whatever configuration they landed in on the floor of the furnace. They were thrown in bound. They had no freedom. And yet in the fire, their freedom was restored to them and their bonds were removed. So they didn't even suffer the loss of freedom, let alone the physical effects of fire burning the flesh of the body. They were not burned, and even their clothes smelled fresh as though the furnace were nothing more than a giant clothes dryer. But beyond this, their status in the province of Babylon was even improved on account of the trial they endured with God. For at the end of this passage, we read that the king promoted these three friends on account of the miracle that he had seen. And so God brought it about that they would not only survive the flames, but thrive through them. And this is the theme of all suffering in Scripture. We just read that Christ's own trials made him perfect. Or think about this in the resurrection. Our bodies will be glorified like Christ's. Unless Jesus returns again, we have to go through the suffering of death to get to this glorification. But our body will be glorified and be like Christ. And so it always gives me pause to consider that in his own resurrection, Jesus' body retained the holes that were made in his hands and feet. So I wonder sometimes in the resurrection, will the martyrs, also show the scars from their trials and torments as a testimony to perfection that they've gained in Christ. What marks might the saints continue to bear on their bodies, in their minds and in their spirits, and yet marks that are redeemed and glorified and made perfect by Christ through his own resurrection to glorious life? And so your trials are never wasted. I I don't know whether you'll suffer bodily harm in your life as a Christian. I don't know whether you'll be turned down for a job, for the opportunity to have your work published, for promotion on account of your commitment to Christ. You might be ridiculed or something like that. But but in this time and place, we don't suffer that much for our faith at the hands of other people. But whether you suffer these things, you may suffer other things. You may be attacked by depression, by doubt, by anxiety, by disease. Uh, The ease of life we enjoy may mean that you simply struggle to fix your mind on heavenly things rather than earthly things, because life is pretty dang good down here on earth. And you certainly have sins in your life that God calls you to give up, and even though it's a holy suffering to give them up, it's still suffering to give them up. Yet if you put your trust in Christ, no trial you face is wasted. For the person who believes in Christ, even the trial posed by death will prove to be an entrance into eternal life. Nothing you suffer tends toward your death as though God were punishing you for your sins. God has already punished your sins by punishing Jesus on your behalf. And so anything you may suffer 
is used by God to discipline you instead, to bring forth the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Now God improved the status of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego through their trials. And God glorified Christ by raising him to life and exalting him to heaven, but only after his death like a criminal. And God grows you through every trial you face. You don't get stronger in the gym without lifting heavy weights and pushing your body to its limits. You don't grow spiritually unless God takes you beyond your limits so that you have nowhere to turn but him. He will show you his power to work in your circumstances. And he will teach you to trust in him all the more. And he will even teach you to turn your trials into blessing for others. For as you grow in overcoming trouble in your life, you will be better equipped to guide your brothers and sisters in their trials. Even your sins will be used by God to bless others as you repent of them and gain wisdom to teach others how to resist sin for themselves. So seek out these opportunities to serve and be open to the experience of your brothers and sisters as God uses them to bless and grow you. And so find people who can bless you and not tear you down. Be open with them about your failures and shortcomings. Confess your sins to them and seek their guidance. You will find that these people are a tremendous blessing to you from God to grow you. And it may be painful and risky, but James says, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. I've found that confessing my own sins to trustworthy people brings sin into the light, where it doesn't often survive long. And you will find this to be the case too. Even confessing your sin is a trial. And God will use this suffering to grow you. And so God is not only present with you by walking with you through trials and growing you through trials, but he also glorifies himself in your trials. Take a look at Nebuchadnezzar. He stood in opposition to God. Now his apparent conversion of chapter 2 was short-lived. And as he sets up this image to be worshipped, he embodies Nietzsche's audacious question. If there is a God, how can I bear not to be that God? Now Nebuchadnezzar must know that he's not indeed all-powerful. But at least he wants to look like him. And so when Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego resist his command and claim that their God is able to save them, the king considers this a threat to everything he is. And so in this towering rage, he orders his faithful servants to be burned up in the furnace. And to make his wrath known and to make their fate certain he has the furnace heated up seven times more than usual. And there is no wrath like Nebuchadnezzar's when faced with the glory of Almighty God. But what about you? Have you ever found God standing in opposition to you? How do you respond when God brings you to your knees? Nebuchadnezzar made himself into his own idol, but what idol do you have in your heart? What do you put on the throne of your heart instead of God? When God requires of you your time, do you give it gladly, or do you wish to use it for yourself? Or what about when God wants you to give up your sense of security to serve a neighbor you don't consider safe? 
When we look at ourselves closely, we find there are all kinds of situations where we'd rather oppose God and his purposes because there's something in life we find better. But God makes a mockery of human attempts to glorify themselves. Even here, God makes a fool out of Nebuchadnezzar. For Nebuchadnezzar meant to use this trial by fire in order to glorify himself. But God instead glorifies himself. And first we see the flames intended to kill Nebuchadnezzar's opponents destroy some of his best soldiers. But then when the time comes that even his intended victims ought to die, God reveals himself to be with them, and he vindicates his faithful ones by keeping them safe from the king's fury. And so in this third chapter of Daniel, we see yet another time when God is humbling Nebuchadnezzar. Each episode builds on the last. For the more severely Nebuchadnezzar persecutes God's people, the more God humiliates him and causes him to give glory to God. At the end of chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar calls Daniel's God the God of gods and Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries and promotes Daniel. But here Nebuchadnezzar is so struck by what he's seen that he even is able to praise the three Hebrew men for their opposition and blesses the true God. So he forbids anybody from speaking against the true God, and he threatens them with the most gruesome and humiliating death. And so even God's opponents in the end have no choice but to acknowledge his glory. Yet even this pales in comparison to the way his saints glorify him. Consider Christ's glorious victory over death when he was raised from the dead. He made a mockery of the death that comes for us all by rising again by God's power. So in Christ's death, the apostle Paul is able to gloat over death, saying, where is your sting? Where is your victory? Even though we all suffer the trial that is death, we also know that by faith in Christ, death will not be able to keep hold of us. For those who put their trust in Christ, they will live again. We will live with God forever. So what are you facing today or in the near future? You can face it with great confidence. For you know that God will not let your trials defeat you. He is always there to walk through trial with you. And indeed, he'll make you stronger for it. And he will reveal his glory through your trials. Amen.